1 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, verses 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you may be blameless and holy in the presence of God and our Father. And when our Lord Jesus comes with, you, with all his holy ones. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this prayer that was written, uh, that was spoken by Paul, was a prayer for the Thessalonian church as they were struggling in this newfound faith, of how do we navigate to uh, an understanding of, how to, uh, of dealing with trials and persecutions? How do we navigate this new uh, territory that, uh, of being a Christian in a non-Christian world? And oftentimes, uh, we living here in the 21st century, we have uh, your scriptures for us, and yet we still struggle in prayer. And so we pray, Lord, that this would become a prayer list for us, that we would know what to pray and how to pray. That it's not just a set of rules, but you have given us uh, a guideline for us to uh, understand this is how we can pray for one another as we move toward the future. So Father, bless our time this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure if you are like me, but I am... Uh, I tend to be what you call a gadget guy. <laughs> I, I like uh, sort of new gadgets. I like electronic stuff. I kind of grew up liking sort of those new technologies, whatever they are. Uh, but, you know, one of the things about gadgets is not for my desire, lack of desire in, in wanting to have them. A lot of times it's my cash flow. I don't have enough money to buy what I want. I think for most of us, when we look at gadgets, uh, it, it's like, oh, wow, it, it, if we had this thing, it's supposed to make our life easier. For example, how many of us uh, buy something thinking that whatever we buy, that thing is going to help us? Well, every year there's a uh, convention called CES, which is a uh, uh, consumer electronic conference uh, held in, in Vegas, and they release a lot of new gadgets. And I thought, man... Some of these gadgets that they release are actually going to be out for the public. Uh, one particular gadget was this a gadget where you would put your <laughs> clothes in this particular gadget, and it would automatically fold it and then have uh, a folded clothes for you. Wouldn't that be a cool gadget? <laughs> just do your laundry and just put it in, and boom, it folds your laundry for you. Well, how many of us lo would love this gadget where we're going to work and you're caught up in traffic, and you can't get anywhere because of gridlock, wouldn't it be great if you could just hover over everybody and go to work uh, in the air? And so now people are developing these new technology and new gadgets where you could actually fly. And within the next 5, 10, 15 years, they're projecting that people will actually be able to go to work in the air. Now, for most of us, when we look at gadgets, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty cool, but they're pretty expensive. But one realization is that something that's novel is not always good. And something that is novel is always not the best. Sometimes what technology does, instead of making our lives better, it actually makes our lives more complicated. Uh, when it comes to even uh, our smartphones, the number one gadget of our generation is what? It's the smartphone. Most of us hold it in our hands. Uh, Harvard University came out with an interesting white paper on technology. And they made a case, a pretty convincing case, of technology in the classroom. 
And if you've ever been near a college campus, you realize that every student has a phone with them. And what they did was they kind of surveyed six different universities to see how effective these phones are in terms of helping the student actually uh, uh, be a better student. Well, college students reported that an average of 11 times per day in class they use their phones. In another study, 92% of college students reported using their phones to send text messages in class. Recently, a faculty member asked for advice on how to develop a policy on, on, on particular uh, using mobile devices in classrooms. And what they found is, is pretty interesting, that most people do not multitask very well. According to uh, these research that were done, uh, using a cell phone during class is, is actually more detrimental to retention than not using it. Those who texted frequently took lower quality notes, retained less information, and did worse on tests on the material. Students themselves realized that cell phone usage does not promote learning. In one particular survey, 80% of students agreed that using a mobile phone in a class uh, decreased their ability to pay attention. How many of us use cell phones, even at church here? Somebody came up to me one day and said, Pastor Ray, we have all these cell phones. Uh, do you know if they're playing games or not? <laughs> I don't know if you're playing a game or not. But I guarantee you this, that the more focus that you have on your game or, or the more focus you have on your phone doing something else will reduce the attention level of what you're listening to. Well, it's not only for classrooms. It's also for children. One of the sad realities of, of being a parent is this, that oftentimes the way in which we sort of pacify our children is by giving them a phone or a tablet. Uh, one of the more recent studies regarding the harmful effects of using uh, that to uh, calm our kids, according to a, a recent survey, 7 out of 10 parents let their ch children play with tablets. And because of this, researchers at University of Iowa have discovered by the age of two, by the age of two, 90% of modern children had a moderate ability to use a tablet. Now think about this. They know how to use a tablet before they can speak. And for many of us who have grown up in this new generation, well, for those of us who are older, we didn't grow up with that. We grew up with watching television. And that was pretty much it. And you couldn't take your television to a restaurant with you. But nowadays, as kids are sitting around the table, everybody has a little mobile device. Now, as we think about this, what are some of the effects or the harmful effects of technology on the brain? Well, according to um, a Los Angeles-based child and family psychotherapist, he said this, we have a lot of two-year-olds using tablets now, and I see three- and four-year-olds who have already become addicted. Our mind literally does shape into what we've experienced. And what they said is this, that now the first addiction of a child is technology addiction or smartphone addiction. And instead of reducing and pacify them long term, it actually creates more tantrums, sleep deprivation, and affects the ability to learn. As parents, we definitely need to do a better job of monitoring our kids' intake of technology. See, I have two teenage daughters, and a lot of times who they are is because of what they have done. And so those of you who have younger kids, that's one of the things that you have to consider. Now, when we talk about in terms of our faith, technology can be helpful, a tool to help us grow in our faith, but it can also be a distraction. So what I would say to you is this, that if we look at the future church, that the best tech 
is old tech in the sense that the most effective way for us to grow in our relationship with God is not necessarily all these things that, that we have, the gadgets, but the th- principles that God has laid for us in the past. And the most powerful thing we can do as Christians, the most effective thing we can do as Christians is to pray. In James chapter 5, James tells us the power of a righteous man is powerful and effective. That's really the goal here, is going back and saying God has given us the tool in which we are to apply that will become powerful and effective in our Christian life. Now, in this particular section we're looking at, uh, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul prays three specific prayers. He begins the first prayer in chapter 1. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. He thanks God for what the church is experiencing and what the church is dealing with. But the second prayer is actually found in this passage. It's a prayer of what I call prayer for endurance, prayer prayer for hanging in there. Uh, It's found in verses 11 through 13. And the final prayer is found in chapter 5, verses 23 to 28. So if you think about prayer for Paul, it's in three major sections, the beginning, the middle, and at the very end. So let's look at this middle prayer. As Paul launches in, he has this deep concern for the church in Thessalonica. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Mike uh, talked about Paul's concern for the church. And he was wondering what the church was going through. And you could almost imagine if you're a a parent and your kid has been away for for a year, or maybe if you're a high school senior and, and, and now they're in their first year of college, you're wondering, how is my kid surviving in college? Well... That was kind of Paul's concern. He had left the church, and, 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 and as after he went to uh, Corinth, the church was going through a lot of persecution. So he wasn't even uh, aware of, of their condition. He was kind of worried, like you and I would be, of somebody we love. And so he sends Timothy to find out what was happening. Now, I think, you know, Paul was probably thinking it was probably the worst, it could have been the worst case scenario. They've all disbanded. The church doesn't exist anymore. And they're all discouraged. But instead of hearing that, Paul comes back, and, or Timothy comes back with the report to say that the church is actually thriving. It's growing. Even though they're suffering, they're going through a lot of hardships, that the church is actually doing well. And so because of that report, Paul begins to pray for them. And he has three particular petitions. And he begins with the phrase, may God, may our, uh, may our God and Father himself. And he begins to pray specifically for the churches. So here's my uh, task for all of you to think about. What are the things that Paul was praying for? And what are the things that we should be praying for, for one another? So the first thing here we see, uh, and if I were to summarize the whole theme of this passage, it's really in one sentence. That the prayer for the future church is for clear direction, overflowing love, and a strengthened heart. Three things that we're going to be looking at. Clear direction, overflowing love, and strengthened heart. And here's what we see in these three things. This is really what ultimately the gospel message is, is about. That we are to be living this out in our lives in every way because this demonstrates the reality of God in our lives. So the first prayer. Prayer for clear direction. The question that Paul is, is asking in this prayer is, is, how do we get direction in our lives? Now notice how he begins this in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself in our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. See, 
Paul was concerned about their well-being. He was concerned about how they were doing. And so he be- begins to pray and says, God, I want to see this church again. I want you to provide a way for us to uh, let us to be reunited. Now in verse 11, this idea of clear direction, uh, Paul was eager to see them. But see, without knowing what Timothy said, he might have been wanting to see them just to see if they were okay. But because of Timothy's report, he's now just excited to see them. He wants to be reunited with them, to celebrate with them. And so he begins to pray, God, help me to see. Provide a pathway. Provide direction. Now, when I think about uh, this passage, I think one of the number one questions, if I were to say, what's our top prayer request? I think the number one prayer request that most Christians have is a prayer request of direction. Lord, should I go this way? Or should I go that way? Think about a signpost with all these directions going. And I think for a Christian, our number one desire is knowing which way to go. We want to know what the will of God is. And so in one sense, this passage gives us sort of the way in which we can understand God's will. There are two things that I want to make known in this passage. Number one, I want you to notice how Paul addresses God. Because the way in which he addresses God has a big, uh, uh, helps us to understand how God leads us. So he begins by saying in verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. First thing is the address. How does he address God? Does he address God as this sort of uh, uh, magnificent deity who's removed from him? Or does he address God in a different way? And if you look at the passage here and the personal nature of his address, he addresses uh, God in this way, our God and Father. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because from a Jewish mind, God was somebody who was distant from them. And in many ways, that's how we think even about God, that God is somewhere out there, that he has very little concern about the affairs of humanity. And so when we would pray, we almost sort of pray sort of like uh, writing a letter to the president or maybe for some of us like writing a letter to Santa Claus, not expecting anything. But Paul's direct address to God is significant because it reminds us that our God is our Father. You know, one of the, the interesting things about the idea of God as Father in Scripture, that in the Old Testament, oftentimes uh, God was described as the Father of Israel the father of, of, of the whole uh, nation. But in the New Testament, Jesus changes that up. Jesus does not uh, or address God sort of in a distant, separate sense. He addresses God in the most intimate sense. So when he teaches his disciples how to pray, the first thing he says is this, our father. Because when you think about a father, uh, you think about somebody who knows you, who's intimate, who knows you beyond the title. For example, let's say uh, you had a boss or you had a president of a company. That president is the president out of title. But if that president is your father, the way you perceive him or her is different, isn't it? Because there's an intimacy involved. And that's what this passage is talking about. That Paul is saying this simply. That when we address, when we ask God for direction, that we are asking for his clarity in the way we should go. Now, why does it matter that our God is our Father? It matters because as our Father, He cares for us in the most deepest way. 
later on in, in Matthew chapter 6, in the section on the Lord's Prayer, afterwards he says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what, whether you, what you will eat or drink or your body or what you will wear. Is not your life more important than food and more important than your clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Who of you worrying can add a single hour to your life? And then he, he continues on. He says, don't worry about anything because God knows the number of your hair on your head. He knows the number of your teeth. He knows everything about you. And not only does he know everything about you, he cares for you. And so your job and my job as Christians is to remember that God is the one who cares for our deepest needs. And so what is our response? Matthew 6.33 is one of my favorite verses. It says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be given unto you. In other words, our job as Christians is simply acknowledge that God is our Father who has our best interests at heart. But the second thing we have to acknowledge is this, that it is God who directs and clears our path. In other words, God is the one who's sovereign over all things. When Paul is praying this, Lord, give me clear direction or, or, or make a way for me to visit them. What he's acknowledging is he's acknowledging God's sovereignty. Because God is the one who can shut the door. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul originally was on his mission trip, he was actually going north around Turkey. And God, one day in, in Acts 16, he has a vision, or, or Paul has a vision. And an angel of the Lord appears to Paul and says, Paul, instead of going there, I want you to go to a new place. And so God makes a way for Paul to be redirected, and that's why he ends up eventually in Thessalonica. And here's the second thing. Not only does God care for you, he knows exactly where you need to go. And so the key to understanding that is the idea of direct. The word there in the, uh, or clear path, the word there in the Greek literally means to make straight. It means to make level. The thought has the idea of removing the unevenness of a road. So imagine if somebody were to say, hey, let's go hiking, and they clear out a path for you. That's what God does. God clears out a path for us, and all we need to do is to go on that path. So how do you know what the will of God is? How do you know what his direction is? Well, instead of you asking God to bless you in your journey, you ask God, where do you want me to go in your journey? Here's the key word, and that's trust. That you have to trust that God has your best interests at heart, and you have to be willing to submit that to God himself. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. He will direct your path. You know, a lot of times as, as Christians, the reason we stumble along in trying to figure out God's will is not because uh, God hasn't revealed his will to us. Oftentimes we stumble along because we want our will to be his will. In other words, our prayer is, Lord, bless me, Bless what I'm doing and just sort of affirm that. And if God says no, then we say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll look for something else. The reality is this, that if you really want to know the will of God, here's the key thing. You have to be willing to submit yourselves to the will of God. And I think that's where a lot of us struggle. 
Are you willing to go wherever God tells you to go? Are you willing to do whatever God tells you to do? Because for us as as Christians, sometimes we hold on to our own will and we don't want to give that up. So when Paul prays, he says, May the Lord, may our God and Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to meet again. His desire was to follow and to do the will of God. That's a great prayer, isn't it? That we should always pray that God will clear the way, that we should always pray that God's will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. But the second prayer moves beyond Paul's uh, desire to moves now to the Thessalonians' need. And the second thing is this, prayer for overflowing love, that their love may abound. Notice this in verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. There's a beautiful imagery there, isn't there? That God's love would fill them and will increase, will overflow them so much that they would overflow that love to the people around us as well as uh, uh, people, especially those who are not believers. He moves from his personal desire to see now in their lives a spiritual quality that he wants them to develop. This idea of abounding and overflowing love. Here's the most important thing. That the defining mark of a Christian is not how much we know. It's not even our apologetics or our theology. The defining mark of a Christian has always been love. Jesus says in Matthew, um, Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, over and over again, Paul reminds us that what he prays for the church is what Jesus prayed that we would be so full of love that that would overflow from us. In Philippians 1.9, he says the same thing. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Is that great? And I think sometimes we as Christians uh, don't demonstrate a lot of love. In other words, uh, sometimes we're known not for our love. We are known for what we believe and sometimes, sometimes even the negative side of that, what we don't believe or our hostility toward those who don't believe the way we do. The Christian church has always been marked by how they love each other. And here's how love works in the Christian life. Think about a potted plant. Uh, if you have a potted plant and you're pouring water into that plant, as the water goes into the soil, it gives nutrients to the plant itself, to the seed, and, and eventually to, to the plant and the roots. And here's the way God's love works. As God's love fills us, overflows in us, that tree or that, that plant becomes nourished and healthy, and then it becomes a, a blessing to those around it. In the same way, that's how the love of God works. The more we understand, the more we comprehend, the more we experience God's love in our lives, then that becomes the thing that overflows to other people's lives. In other words, once you've experienced the depth of the gospel message, which is that God loved you despite who you are, God loves you despite what you have done, that God's love overflows and fills you, that you can't help but share that love with people around you. And you know what happens when God transforms your heart and your love? You become a loving person. You become a gracious person. I love how 
when you ask children, sometimes the innocence of their definition really is profound, isn't it? They were asking some children, how do you, how do you define love? What does love mean to you? And some of the kids, this is how they answer. Rebecca, age eight, said this. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when he, he hurts his hand and he has arthritis. That's love. Billy Ford says, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Bobby H. Seven says, love is what is in the room at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Nika H. Sex says, if you want to learn to love better, you should start with someone you hate. It's pretty profound, isn't it? Because if you think about it, we as people, humanity, <laughs> sinful selves, we're all selfish at the very core. And if somebody wrongs us, we want to wrong them. If somebody says something to us, uh, negative, we want to say back to that. That's just human nature. And the only way we can have love, supernatural love, is for us to first understand and comprehend the love of God in our lives. I always believe this, that once you have been transformed by the love of God, you can't help but overflow that love to other people. But you know what happens a lot, a lot of times? Is that like that potted plant... When God's love isn't poured into our lives or when we don't receive of it, it's like turning the, uh, the, the pot upside down. God's love is pouring, but because the pot is keeping the water from going in, what ends up happening is that the, the pot or the soil becomes dry. Um, one of the things my, my mom uh, told me to do a few, weeks back, uh, a few months back, she went to uh, Florida uh, for a trip with my, my dad, to see my sister. So she stayed there for a month. And so she gave me an assignment. And my assignment was really simple. She gave me the keys to the house, and she said, go water my plants. So in my, in my head, okay, I'm going to water my uh, plants. I, I, she goes, you don't have to water too much. Just, just go in the water. But a week went by, I forgot. <laughs> a week went by, I forgot. A week went by, I forgot. Eventually, like week three, a day before she was to come back, I remember. So I rush over to the house, and I get some water, and I start pouring the water and it was like, like parched cement. The soil was so hard. I had forgotten to nourish the soil. And when our hearts aren't nourished by the goodness and the grace of God and the love of God, we become parched. And I think that's why Christians can become so negative and cynical is because we ourselves haven't received God's love. And here's the outflow of what happens when we love. One of the practical applications of this is this. That when we truly love, one of the greatest apologetics for the gospel is demonstrated in hospitality. You know, if you think about it, hospitality is the demonstration, tangible demonstration of God's overflowing in our lives. Uh, there's an article in, in a blog called The Gospel Coalition. And they say this, that hospitality reflects the gospel. Faithful Christians are and have always been a strange minority in a hostile world. Redeemed by Christ, we have lost our old lives, and with our lives we have left behind our history, our identity, and people who once claimed us. Conversion starts with the sacrifice of what once was, and the gospel provides for us what we have relinquished through hospitality. When Peter says to Jesus, see, we have left everything to follow you, Judas responds and says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left a house or brothers or sisters or mother or fathers 
for my sake, for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time or generations to come. And I love this idea that the gospel comes with a house key. Rosaria Butterfield uh, wrote a book. Rosaria Butterfield was an uh, uh, English professor at, at an Ivy League school. Uh, she was a, what we would call a radical feminist, English professor who was an active lesbian. And she hated Christians, or, or her misunderstanding of Christians were these were Christians who were bigoted, who were always judging her. Well, down the street where she lived, there was a pastor and his wife. And the pastor and his wife, one day, they, they, they became friends. The pastor and his wife invited Rosaria uh, to her house. And she was expecting, and she had, she had been reading up on what they believed, she was expecting a heated discussion on religion. And when she came to the house, instead of talking about religion, they just talked about their lives over a meal. A week later, they invited her back again. For several months and even years went by, their friendship began to grow. Rosaria Butterfield, by the way, said that was the primary means by which she understood the gospel. That hospitality in, in, in this pastor's uh, life was a demonstration of love for her. And so her new book is called The Gospel Comes with the House Key. And I think as Christians, we have a great apologetic, don't we? Because we are called to be people of love. And that love is demonstrated by giving ourselves. And what's the most intimate thing of our lives? It's our homes. That we open up our homes to one another allows the gospel to be known and to be seen. But not only does he pray for this overflow of love, there's a third thing he prays for. And you could almost sort of uh, look at this prayer in three ways. The past the present, and the future. The past is he wants to see them. He's praying that God will provide a, a, a clear direction. The present is he wants them to be filled with overflowing love. But the future is this. The future prayer is that they will not give up, that they will remain blameless and sanctified and holy before God. So in verse 13, he says, May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and and holy in the presence of God and our Father, and when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. The third prayer is a prayer of our hearts being strengthened. It is the idea that our hearts are so um, strong, it's, it's guarded, that when Christ comes back, he will see a church in its glory. The idea of strength is, is the idea of support. They are to remain firm and not give up. You know, I think as Christians, it's kind of easy at times to give up, isn't it? I mean, sometimes, you know, when you first became a Christian, you have this, like, me-against-the-world attitude. I became a Christian when I was uh, 13 years old. And I was a radical Christian. I mean, I was so crazy. I would go, uh, I would read the Bible. I would consume the Bible. I would share the gospel with, with all my friends. I remember in ninth grade in high school. This is how crazy I was. One of my electives was, was art. I took an art class. And so I was sitting in art class, and I committed myself to share the gospel in a militant way. So you know what I did? Every single picture I drew of Jesus. 
throughout the whole semester, all I would draw was pictures of Jesus. And it was like crazy. And I remember sitting next to a guy, uh, his name uh, was Mike, I think. Mike uh, was an atheist, and he did not like me. <laughs> he didn't like the pictures I drew. And so we would get into these heated arguments once the art teacher would come and say, you guys, stop arguing about religion. But I was so convinced that this was true. Well, in that class happened to be another guy. His, uh, his name was Ethan, uh, Ethan Kaufman. And Ethan Kaufman uh, grew up in the most uh, sort of a non-Christian uh, family you could imagine. He was half Jewish and half Japanese. So there was no Christian background in, in Ethan's life. He and I then became friends. And we would go out and, and we would hang out together. Eventually, uh, I shared the gospel with Ethan. And Ethan became a Christian and became a pretty strong Christian. Went to a youth group all the way through uh, high school and then went to... Uh, uh, college and was involved in campus ministry and then went on missions. And I looked back at that time and I said, I was so crazy for Jesus at the age of 13. There was nothing that I would do to sort of give that up. But you know what happens as we get older? When life becomes a little bit more real, we get a job, you graduate from college, you have kids, and then our faith becomes a little bit lazy. And what ends up happening is our faith becomes sort of tempted and sort of intertwined with the things of this world. And so materialism starts to seep in. Our minds become sort of half divided. And so church becomes optional. God sometimes becomes optional. How many of us know people that have once had this amazing, strong faith when they were younger who have now totally walked away from the faith? So you know what Paul's prayer is? Paul's prayer is that your hearts would be strengthened that you would not give up, that you would remain firm. Because when you remain firm, you will see Christ coming back. The key word there is not to give up. Sometimes I think as Christians, we give up way too soon. We get inundated with life, and so we get tempted. We, we start compromising. Our mind starts to wander. You know, in our day and age, we have more access uh, to things on the internet than generations, history of mankind. In this short period of time, we could see and do anything that other societies would never be able to be exposed to. And yet, God calls us to keep our hearts blameless and holy. Next week, we're going to talk more about what sanctification looks like. But here's the thing. No matter how tempted you are to give up, here's your prayer. That God will strengthen your hearts. Because the time that we want to most give up are the times that we can actually excel and persevere. Uh, New York Times best-selling book is, is a book called When, uh, The Scientific Secrets of, a, of Perfect Timing. And in this particular book, it was uh, written by Daniel Pink, and he does a little study on the idea of when you are behind. So if you see a scoreboard and you know, a team is uh, 38 and 37 at halftime, this was actually based on University of Pennsylvania study where they looked at 18,000 NBA scores. Now, here's the interesting thing. When the scores were uh, at halftime, when the team had a big advantage at halftime, uh, they would win majority of the time. But what surprised them the most was when the team was down by one point that they would actually have a greater chance of winning than even if they were ahead. And what they realize in this, uh, they say slightly behind, being behind significantly increases the chance of winning. 
And when they examined the scoring patterns in detail, they found that trailing teams scored disproportionate number of points immediately after they had. In other words, they came out strong. They persevered. We are living in an uh, age in which our culture is, is, is changing very rapidly. And sometimes we as Christians feel more and more like a minority. But here's the thing, don't give up. Because the thing that we look forward to is, is the future. That Christ will come back. And so over and over again in Scripture, the early church would taught one word, and that's to persevere. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul says, watch your life. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save yourself and others. And then in Hebrews 10.36, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. James 1.12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised. And then Revelation 2.3, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Those are the people that God looks to. And so my challenge to you is this, that those are the three things that we need to pray. That we would be following the will of God, that, that we would know what the will of God is, the clear direction of God's will. Secondly, that we would be people who are so abounding and so overflowing in love that it infects and influences everybody around us. And number three, that we will have people that are hearts who are strengthened even in the midst of persecution because we have a hope that is greater. You know what prayer does? Prayer then connects us to God himself. I told you in the beginning about technology, how technology in our day has become a substitute for God, hasn't it? That technology is, is sort of a shortcut to divinity. But even in the world of technology, they need God. And even in the world of technology, they need prayer. Uh, this woman uh, uh, was in a prayer meeting with her uh, members of their uh, church. And she was an executive of a, of, a, of a high-tech company. And it says, last night a woman in our church told how God had given her uh, a task that she had to accomplish. She was a, a website architect working for a big downtown bank that hired her specifically to upgrade the site's interface for those with disabilities. It was considered by most an impossible job. But everyone with whom she had directly worked with her said, you can't do this. You will fail. You, have no, you don't have the necessary intelligence or the background for this. And she nodded and she agreed. But God had paved the way directed her, and so she accepted the job, and she didn't know what to do. And so she knew God wanted her to do this, and she had no way of accomplishing it, so what do you do? So no one knew how to do what the bank was asking. One technician told her he could, he could not do in a year even part of what the company was asking her to do in six months. This was uncharted territory. She feared what would happen if she failed. She would lose her job and pay, and she would have to move away. So she did the only thing that she knew what to do. She began to pray. She began to seek the impossible from God, and so she called out to God. All day long, every day, she prayed fervently over every detail, over every web page, every line of code. She literally wept and prayed, and she felt small and vulnerable. But she was also convinced with a fierce conviction that God was great enough to help her with this impossible task. 
So she kept on crying out to God day after day, planning functionalities, writing code, telling her team of developers what to do. She worked hard. Day after day, she received wisdom from one piece of the project from another. Every step, every idea was discovery. And so week after week, one piece, one page, one functionality after another, months passed and progress continued. And eventually, after uh, around the same deadline, the project was completed. As she spoke this to her people in her church, they all began to understand that this project was really God's project. And that God had placed her in this impossible task. And the only means by which she can accomplish this impossible task was to pray. The question I have for you is this. What is the thing that's impossible for you? What is the thing that you're struggling with? What is the thing that, that you need direction from? What is the thing that you're struggling, maybe relationally, and where you need to endure? And so as we look into this passage, this is a three prayer list for one another. If we as a church prayed this, what can God do? Lord, direct our church. Give us a pathway. Take us wherever you want us to go and help us to follow you and submit to you. Help this church to be filled with people that love each other, that are overbounding or, or, or overflowing with love. And let us be a church that doesn't give up, no matter how hard it is. Let's pray for one another and let's pray for the church. Because some of you in this room, this is your prayer this morning. As we conclude our time, last, just before I came here, uh, we're praying over a woman at the other campus. And she was at, at, at the last stages of, of, she just went through chemotherapy. And she said, Pastor Ray, would you and the elders pray for me? So we went in and prayed for her. And she got on her knees. It was a, we, we put up a chair for her to sit in. But she said, Pastor Ray, do you mind if I, if I go on my knees? So she got on her knees. And so as we began to pray, this passage came. In, she had just heard this message. And you know what encouraged her? which I hope encourages you, is that she's gone through six months of, of the, some of the most difficult, painful thing that a, a person can go through. But she said, thank you f as a church that we have a church that would strengthen us when our hearts get weary. That we have a God who hears our prayer. No matter what happens, that we have confidence that God is the one leading the way.